For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, an episode about healing spiritually, physically, mentally, and emotionally. The miniseries Gospel is coming up, and I'll talk with partners Kevin and Tanisha Hamilton about the local gospel community. Learn how a Southern Arizona hospital has been helping patients to heal and ease their anxiety using art and music. Meet the Director of Military and First Responder Trauma Recovery, also known as the Red, White, and Blue Program at Sierra Tucson. And this month's Stories That Soar was written as a collaboration between an entire second grade class about the concept of love. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The two-night event miniseries Gospel, hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr., will dig deep into the origin of black spirituality as conveyed through sermon and song. It airs on February 12th and 13th on PBS Channel 6. Next, Tucson residents Kevin and Tanisha Hamilton, who are partners in life, music, and worship, join to tell us about the power and importance of gospel. When we talk about gospel, we're talking about a specific story, the Gospels of Jesus Christ. That's where the message comes from, the transformative message of uh, the teachings and the works and the miracles of Jesus. And so from there, the story's told either through spoken word traditions in the church through the sermon, or it's sung by singers, uh, choir members, individuals, Sometimes there's a dance between the preacher and the musician. They both kind of interact with each other, and they always uh, call the musicians a person who's there to give the pastor or the preacher a little help. And from the choir to the congregation to the musicians to the pastor, it's everybody under one roof together. It seems so much less regimented and divisive than some other approaches to service. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, it's a a melodic kind of thread that that you find that everyone can kind of jump on to. Um, I'm reminded of just so many train references back in the back in our uh, our gospel music uh, back in the uh, 20s and 30s. There's this this atmosphere that is set with the music that is visceral. You get on the train and there's your neighbor there that's on the train with you and and you just kind of continue to go higher and higher and higher. And I think the gospel music helps kind of be the conductor of that train, but then kind of have the um, where you start that foundation and continue to go higher. When someone is testifying in a church, they get that response, that support from the audience. That's a really powerful element to me of the gospel church experience is simply to testify. Absolutely. It is the story, and it's the story of the journey of of what someone has gone through and um, how God has helped them turn the corner, has helped them to even see the situation differently. I mean, whatever the outcome may be, that story, it is the thing I think that makes it so relatable. And that's what then turns into our, our message and our music. 
it's that same struggle um, and of how God continues to bring us through. It, it comes through um, in gospel music with that message. I also think the encouragement that you get, the love that comes back to you when someone you maybe don't even know at all just agrees with you, testifies with you. In the excerpt from Gospel that we got to watch, they talk about a song called Shouting John. And I'd never heard the story behind that before. So the, the specific story behind Shirley Caesar writing that song, I don't know exactly what happened. Yeah. But uh, Tanisha and I were talking about it today. The song really signifies how the black community has tried to modernize and push forward in society. Church was no different. And so the song was written in 1988. And I remember I graduated high school in 88 and I was deeply into gospel music at the time. I remember that there was a push for more contemporary music and a more dignified way of praising God in church. And that moved away from how African-Americans utilized gospel music in the past as their counselor as the, the, the one that comforted them. Like gospel music is an institution and it was there for everyone, everybody. And Shouting John said, you know, if I can't shout in church because you guys are too dignified, well, go ahead and hold my mule. I'm gonna shout right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that signifies that gospel music is in the heart of the people and you can't legislate or govern how a person praises God or how a person tells their testimony. Well, in the documentary, there's definitely a focus, at least initially, around Chicago. What can you tell us, the two of you, about the Tucson gospel community? Some people might be surprised to know that we have one. We absolutely do have a, a gospel community here. Um, I actually met Kevin through a community gospel choir that's another story, another interview, right, Mark? Sure thing. <laughs> um, the, the various churches that we have in town that are African-American churches that have that tradition of the, um, the gospel choir, um, some have kind of narrowed the, the, the large church, the large choir down to just a few singers where it's just maybe a, a kind of a team, a praise and worship team, as it's called. So, um, so some of that is still there. Then also, just in the community, there is a chapter um, of the Gospel Music Workshop of America here um, in Tucson. And it is a choir made up of folks from various churches, various denominations, um, all kind of coming together to lift up their voices. Yes, there are quite a few churches who have vibrant music departments here in Tucson who've always had them. There have been so many musicians over the years like Dorothy Reed, who just passed away over the pandemic, had the Southern Arizona Gospel Choir, Community Choir, which was really big here for decades. And uh, Carl Hawkins is a great gospel composer, musician, and singer here locally now, is um, very prolific. For someone who has in the past been too shy to want to join in with a, with a choir or a chorus, what's a basic tip? that you would give them? I would say first find an ensemble or a choir where you feel good, where they, they share the love that they have in their heart with you and there's peace 
and that there's a purpose and a call for that organization because where when there's a call on your life and a call on the organization that group moves forward and you're not even thinking about being nervous telling your story or sharing with others and then you want to get into a place to where you can um, just start to build your confidence so it helps when you are in a in a relaxing place a place that has a really good atmosphere that's one that's set with with grace and with peace my guests were kevin and tanisha hamilton of southwest soul circuit They'll be part of a panel at a public preview of Gospel being held on February 4th. The program airs on February 12th and 13th on PBS Channel 6. There's more information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. With a few exceptions, nobody wants to go to the hospital. It puts you in your most vulnerable place while you depend on delicate medical care from the valuable team members who provide it. But in some cases, that team could be even larger than you expect, including not only doctors and nurses, but artists, photographers, and musicians. Next, Tony Paniagua talks with Lauren Rapp, the curator of the Tucson Medical Center's Healing Art Program, which is currently celebrating its 10th year. Lauren Rabb, the curator of Tucson Medical Center's Healing Art Program. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. Yes, and you have a major anniversary coming up. Can you tell us about that, please? We do. We were established in 2014, and so this year is our 10th anniversary. Pretty excited about it. How did the whole concept or idea come up for this program? It was originally the brainchild of a gentleman named Len Corris and his wife, Doris. Um, Len, unfortunately, has since past, but um, Doris is still very active, and he just thought it would be a great idea if collectors at the time in particular had a place where they could leave their art, you know, when their estates were being made smaller or they were passing away or their children didn't want to deal with the hundreds of works of art they may have collected, and so he thought, wouldn't it be great to have it go to hospitals? And uh, he brought the idea to Michael Duran, who was the head of the TMC Foundation at the time. And Michael looked around and said, we have eight miles of hallway, so this would be awesome. Let's see if we can get this going. Eight miles of potential gallery space at TMC. Yes, and that is only the main hospital, meaning we also do all of the ancillary clinics. We do TMC ones. We just put art into the new Rincon Hospital, um, our new hospital at Houghton and Drexel, will hopefully open in a couple of months. So yeah, it's a lot. I was looking at some of the paintings and they are simply amazing. Desert landscapes, birds, farms, they take you to Paris, to Turkey, other parts of the world. It's also, to me, a really nice way to get exposure to many places and topics that I hadn't thought about. We're very thoughtful about where we place the art, like for example, a lot of those images that you saw of foreign countries, those are in pre-anesthesia testing. And the concept is the people going there are getting testing before they have surgery. And sometimes it's hard for them to see beyond the surgery. So we're trying to remind them that they're gonna have life after and they're gonna be able to travel again. Those kinds of things are what we think about when we place artwork and um, we have a tremendous amount of photography. The general rule of thumb is that when you're not feeling well the best thing you could see is a beautiful landscape but if you can't look out the window and see a beautiful landscape then the next best thing is a beautiful landscape photograph. I would have never thought about doing something like that but as you say gives them an idea or hope that there will be something after this surgery. 
Yeah, and a lot of these ideas come from the staff themselves. I try to be very collaborative with the staff and let them have a lot of say in decision making about what art they're going to get. Um, I don't want to ever just impose some artworks in some unit without the staff having buy-in. What are the benefits that have been described as far as having this art in settings like hospitals? Well, I'm really glad you asked that because there's actually a tremendous amount of research that talks about how art can be calming and soothing, can focus people's attention away from whatever they're going through. And then since we also have a very active music program, which is something we started just a couple of years after the program got established, we have live musicians that play for patients. And as I was saying, there is a ton of research out there. I think that at this point in history, everyone pretty much recognizes that that is a thing, art and music, and how helpful it is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every hospital steps up and does something about it. Um, I can give you one perfect example. I have a musician, Katie Baird, who plays viola. She was playing for a woman who has cancer and had just gotten a very serious diagnosis about her prognosis, and it wasn't good, and she was in a tremendous amount of pain. And she asked Katie to come into her room and play for a while, and she told her that was the first time in hours she had not been in pain. Lauren, what are some of the favorite instruments, if you will, or types of music for the patients there? Everyone who plays in the units plays a string instrument. So we have harp, we have classical guitar, we have viola, violin. When people are playing a string instrument live, it actually has a vibration. And that vibration actually can transfer kind of into someone who's really listening hard. They can feel it inside themselves. And so we have found that string instruments have the most ability to really get inside people and make them feel better. We do have a piano in the lobby, and we have some volunteer pianists that play that on a fairly regular basis. There's a lot of psychology and thoughtfulness that goes into this program. Yes, and as I mentioned, there's just so much research. I didn't have to invent any of this. It was all out there for me to find. And what is your background, Lauren, and how did you discover this program? Why did you decide to get involved? Well, I have a master's degree in art history, and I've worked in the art world my entire career. I was at the UA Museum of Art. Um, I was the curator there for a while, and then when I left, Len Corris, who I mentioned earlier, was the founder. He approached me, and he really, really wanted me to come do this job, and at first I was wasn't really sure about it because I'd never even considered that I would ever work in a hospital and I was pretty intimidated by the concept. But you know, I quickly saw that there was going to be so much benefit and one of the really nice things about working in a hospital environment is that people are really grateful and they tell you all the time how much they appreciate what you're doing and that's just not something that happens a lot in the art world. So very, very rewarding. Lauren, you've been at this job for 10 years. It seems like you really love and value your position. I really, really love the job. It is definitely the best job I've ever had in the arts. Um, just because you can actually see the impact of what you do, it's just wonderful to hear from people, from patients, from staff. A lot of staff have told me what a difference it makes. I've had staff members tell me that they came to work at TMC because they like the environment better than other hospitals in town. Lauren Rabb, she is the curator of Tucson Medical Center's Healing Art Program. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks. For photos of some of the artwork at Tucson Medical Center, you can visit the Spotlight page at azpm.org. We also have an Arizona Illustrated video there about the Healing Art Program that will help you learn more. Mm -hmm.
When we talk about mental wellness, so often the group of people left out of the conversation are the ones we think of as watching out for the rest of us, those who serve in the military, our police, and first responders. There's a program at Sierra Tucson called Red, White, and Blue that is offering help, and I invited the program director, Bill Reynolds, to tell us how, starting with a few things about himself. I was in the Navy for 30 years, and I worked in Navy medicine. I ended up retiring in 2012. And when I left the Navy, I decided to go into working in the psychiatry and the addiction field, which is something that really kind of grew near and dear to me as, as my time in the, the Navy uh, you know, ended. You know, we had been in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. I got to go to Iraq in 2004, serve with a surgical company, and I just have a lot of firsthand experience of seeing people, you know, suffer not only physical injuries, but, you know, uh, obviously the with post-traumatic stress, depression, addiction. So often in our culture, we think of people who are in the military and those people who are first responders as being the strongest among us. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that stereotype can work against people when they really need help. It can be harder for them to come forward, and it can be harder for other people to take them seriously. One of the observations that, that I've noticed is it takes an incredible amount just to get somebody to agree to come into treatment. I mean, that's that's a big thing because, you know, traditionally as, uh, you know, as, as being a man, but also military, we're taught to, you know, suck it up, so to speak. So one of the one of the main missions that we certainly have in my program is to break the stigma. You know, just simply recognizing that it's okay to, to ask for help is a major breakthrough for a lot of our a lot of our patients, and it's tough. I mean, some of the some of the veterans and first responders out there are very very difficult. They're very guarded. They have fears that they may lose their job, they may lose their badge, or yeah, it's just it's just a big challenge. So we really just try to normalize that it's okay to ask for help. So explain to us the difference between PTSI and the more familiar phrase that we've all heard thrown around PTSD. They're the same thing. You know, the, the language around, you know, the traditional diagnosis of PTSD disorder is kind of stigmatizing in and of itself. So that diagnosis came up actually as a result of Vietnam veterans back in the in 1980 was when it was formally recognized. So um, when you couch it in terms of it being a post-traumatic stress injury, that's a little bit more palatable to people because, you know, injuries we can we, we can help. We can help heal that. So, the, again, comes back to language. Anything that is a disorder, we have a tendency to, you know, people think, well, I have a disorder. You know, I don't want to go get help. So it's essentially the same thing, Mark. In the stressful situations that these people often have to deal with, accidents happen, and sometimes innocent people can be hurt. And that might be a more difficult thing to live with than anything I can imagine right now. We all fear when we're driving, making an error, causing an injury, but these people who are on literally the front lines of so many different situations contend with that in a much more intense way. So explain how moral injury is viewed in this field and how your program attempts to help people who may have suffered such. Yeah, sure. I'll give you a good example of moral injury that we frequently see at Sierra Tucson is some of our veterans that may have been involved in a firefight where a child was inadvertently injured. When I was in Iraq, I actually had to fly uh, on an emergency medevac mission with a uh, Iraqi who had actually killed one of our soldiers, and I was responsible for caring for him. 
So I find myself flying in this helicopter, literally, you know, giving it, bagging him and giving him medication, even though he uh, intended to cause us harm. So we have moral injury groups at, at my program, and we talk about those things, and we process those with various types of, of therapy. And I'll tell you, Mark, one of the biggest things is people, when they, when they get this wound out in the open, they realize that they're not alone. So just airing it and, uh, you know, with, with my team, groups of therapists and, and their peers can be very healing. What would you say about the populace that you serve at Sierra Tucson? Who generally do you find yourself sitting across the table with? Usually veterans. We have, uh, we have been fortunate to get referrals from different VAs all around the country. The Veterans Health Administration, as you know, is kind of stretched to the limit with, uh, you know, the amount of time that we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they have been kind enough to refer people out for treatment. So my most common person sitting across from me is a male, probably 30s or 40s, who comes in with a substance use disorder, such as alcohol or sometimes opiates. But also underlying that, most always, is post-traumatic stress. I have yet to meet somebody who struggles with addiction that does not have some kind of underlying uh, trauma or, you know, undiagnosed mental health condition. So we help them sober up and figure out what's really driving the addiction. What about involving friends and family in the process? Huge part, huge piece of our treatment. We also incorporate family members, typically spouses of people that come into treatment. The spouses are the ones that are often, you know, forgotten about. But when you think about it, you know, every time somebody goes off to a deployment or even a police officer goes on a call, that spouse is with them. So the, the spouse obviously struggles with uh, the addiction of the, of the particular patient or the nightmares or, or whatever. So we bring them into the fold as well. Yeah, what you said just a moment ago about when an enlisted person goes into combat, they're taking the emotions of their significant other with them mm-hmm. into that situation. Mm-hmm. I think those of us who have never been in a situation like that maybe find that easy to forget the significance of that emotional connection when in a stressful, life-threatening situation. You know, in order to survive as a military member or a first responder, you have to compartmentalize. It's oftentimes actually weighs more on the spouse than it does on the individual. Because, I mean, I know when I was in Iraq, I could not be consumed with thoughts of my, my wife and my kids all the time because it would, it would be very difficult for me. But, you know, the, the person on the home front, you know, keeping the home fires burning, they're the ones that carry that, that stress. And, you know, sometimes when people come back from deployments as well, and they, even if they share with their spouses, there's a term called vicarious trauma, where the person listening to the stories of the traumatized person can actually sometimes develop symptoms of that. Mm-hmm. So if there's someone who's listening to this interview and they think of themselves or they think of someone they know who might benefit from this experience that you offer, what would you want to say? What can you tell this hypothetical person through the radio about what it will be like entering this program? You know, asking for help is one of the most difficult things that people can do because we like to be self-reliant. We like to self-solve our problems. But that fear, once, you know, once anybody is able to take that step and realize that there's, there's a whole program of, of staff, of skilled therapists and doctors waiting for them that, uh, that, know, that know what they're doing, 
changes can be made. I mean, I've seen so many people turn their lives around completely just simply by asking for help, just surrendering. You know, there's victory in surrender. And whether that person is uh, a military person or not, I mean, you know, post-traumatic stress is actually far more common in the civilian population because of, you know, being raised in adverse circumstances or, or whatever. So just know that there there is help out there. And I know it can be scary, but uh, it's t- just taking that first step. It's huge. Thanks to Bill Reynolds of Sierra Tucson's Red, White, and Blue program. If you or someone you know would like more information, there's a link on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. There's no shame in attempting to save a life, especially your own. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a professional group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the potential of bringing their stories to life. It's the first Thursday of February, and this new Stories That Soar was written as a collaboration between an entire second grade class. When they were asked, what does the word love mean to you? The students decided to remind us all. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Love is the sun. It keeps me warm. Love is a teddy bear. (laughs) It makes me feel loved. Love is when my friends help me. Hey, are you okay? Let's help you out. Thanks. Love is cousins. (laughs) They love you and help you. Love is hugs when you need them and your family gives them to you. We love you so much, sweetie, and we're always here for you. Love is food. You can eat it with your family. Love is my dog. Come here, boy. Come here. He's a good boy. I love him, and he loves me, too. Love is loving others. Love is kind. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. Lovely lines. That audio creation was composed by a second-grade class at Robison Elementary, Go Roadrunners. The voices were all by middle school students studying acting, film, and radio production at Literacy Connects Youth Center. Remember, aspiring student-age writers can submit their stories now to the Magic Box Story Portal at literacyconnects.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.